So what are we thankful for? What am I thankful for? I'm thankful for the words that, that we sang in that last song, that Jesus Christ is my living hope. And, and before I can be thankful for my family, for my wife and my children and, 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 and godly parents, I need to be thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for me and the hope that I have in him. And as we look at this book of Romans um, that we're in, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 3, uh, the book of Romans has a, has a dark side to it and gives us some, some really discouraged, gives us a, really, a real look at us and our need for this uh, hope in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the beginning of the book of Romans. And, and I look at Romans as a road map, and if, let's, let's look at our... Uh, at these banners up here, we're right now in this, the first four chapters are about justification, you know, our need for a Savior. And so, so basically what, what Rome, these first four chapters are, it's like in a map. When, when, when you look at a map, you know, a lot of times when you go uh, to a rest area, it says you are here so that you know your reality and, and where you need to go. And so, so what the first four chapters, uh, Paul does, he says you are here. This is your current reality, and this is what you need. And then he moves us to, to our sanctification. Once we recognize our need for Jesus and we make a commitment to him, we move to sanctification. And then we'll see us moving on to, to proclamation and glorification. But in these first uh, uh, three chapters that we've been in so far, Paul reminds us in, in the first part of or, or from verses 18 to 32 in chapter 1, that, that all Gentiles are sinners. But the question comes, well, what about good people? What about moral people? Well, Paul says in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he says that, that even moral people are sinners. So even good people are sinners and, and need to be saved, and, and, the, and the Jew still agrees with that. And then in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, he says, even you Jews are sinners. Even you are sinners. And, and to that, the Jew has a really hard time agreeing with what Paul is saying. Basically, what Paul is saying is, look, the human race is condemned before God. All people are sinners, and all people are in need of justification. And justification is the act of God bringing sinners into a new covenant relationship with himself through the forgiveness of sin. Through the cross, we receive justification. The word justification means just as if you had never sinned. When I believe on Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven. Paul says in chapter 5 of, of Romans where the transition begins, says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 3, in this first part, the first eight verses, this is what Paul says. Now, Paul is like a, like a prosecuting attorney. Paul is a very, very sharp, um, articulate guy. And so this is what his, his, his argument is as, as an attorney. He says, what advantage then... Is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. 
what if the same, um, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Now, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as, you are being, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Father, as we look at these words, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impress upon us what you, through your Spirit, want us to understand and how you want us to live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul here, as the prosecuting attorney, is almost ready to to rest his case. But but he, he, he brings up three objections. Now, since Paul often debated with, with Jews in, in the synagogues, and, and, and probably, or there's a good chance that, that a lot of these objections that he's bringing up are, are real objections that he's heard in the past. Maybe. We don't know for sure. Or maybe these are objections that Paul himself had when he first came to faith in Christ. And, and so he begins to answer these questions about these three objections. So there are, in this, in this text, in verses 1 through 8, there are three objections, and then Paul gives three answers to those objections. And so the first objection is, so Paul, why even be religious? It says in verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And this is sort of how this argument goes. Paul, if we're sinners like the Gentiles, why bother being Jewish? Paul, why keep the law? Paul, why follow the Ten Commandments? Why offer sacrifices? Paul, why why don't we just give up? Paul, this is where your argument that you're making leads us. To to just, why be religious? See, the Jews were arguing that that they have special favor with God, and, and their special favor means that they have special privileges. Now, Paul doesn't deny that that the Jew stands in a special relationship with God. The Jews are God's chosen people. 
And he doesn't deny that. You know, they were given the word of God. But what Paul, the, the case that Paul is making is, look, just because you have special favor, it doesn't necessarily give you special privilege. What it does you do is it gives you a, a special responsibility that, that God expects more, not less from you as Jews because you have been given so many favors by God. You have a special responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected. And Paul's saying, look, it's better to, to, to serve God and keep the law, but, but that doesn't give you special favor with God. It's sort of like this, I read uh, Ray Stedman has this helpful illustration. He says that, look, it's like, it's like being on an island that is always dark. There's, it's always, there's always darkness. And on this island, there is a bridge that takes you over to where there is light. Now, every person that lives on the island is given this little pen light that can see one foot either way. So it, it sheds a little bit of light, but not enough to really make a difference. But there's this one group on the island that they have this, this, this huge uh, spotlight. And, and this light sees for hundreds and hundreds of yards. And this light gives the ability to find that bridge that takes you to where the light is. But, but this group of people that has this light, they use it for other things. They don't use it to, to shed light and, and, to, and to give light to the people that only have a pen light. They use it to find needles in a haystack. They're using that light to find silver coins and, and to find treasures that are on the island. And so they're consumed with what's right in front of them. And therefore, they never shed light to those people that need it. And what Stedman says, that is what the Jews were doing. They wasted the light that was given to them. The law was like a searchlight to help people find God. But they were using the light that they had on trivial things. You know, the Jews were arguing about how far they could walk on the Sabbath. They were arguing about whether or not you could spit on the Sabbath or whether you had to spit on, on mud or you had to spit on rock and one of them was, was a sin and one of them wasn't. So they were arguing about trivial things and in the process weren't shining light for people to get to this bridge. He says, you Jews, that's what, you're, that's what they were doing. They were wasting this incredible light that was given to them to argue about trivial things and therefore never pointing people to God. But you know, we do that. We argue about trivial things. We've been given this incredible gift through Jesus Christ. And yet we argue about dumb things and forget to point people to Jesus. Paul says, you have been given special privilege. 
That means you have special responsibility. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you are, a light, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does a light, neither do people light a lamp and put it on their bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, that was the Jewish responsibility in the Old Testament to be a light on a hill, to shine light so that God could be glorified. And that is our responsibility as followers of Christ. But too often we get consumed with other things and, and we let our light be hidden. He says, no, let it shine. We have special responsibility with the special privilege that we've been given. Second argument that, uh, that Paul makes is, is, so why not just give up since God has given up on us? It says in verse 3, so what if some don't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And this argument goes something like this. So Paul Suppose for a moment we, we, we grant your argument that, that, that Jews are sinners. And if it's true, then, then we might as well forget about the promises of the God of Israel, right? I mean, he made a deal with us. And according to you, according to what you're saying, Paul, that we didn't keep our part of the bargain. And therefore, God won't keep his part of the bargain either. That's, that's the way this argument goes. Paul, since we sinned, and, and, and you, you, you tell us we sinned and we didn't keep up our part of the bargain, therefore God's not going to keep up his part either. Again, there's a, there's a grain of truth in that. Uh, the, the Jews didn't keep up their part of the bargain. Uh, they sinned repeatedly, and you know, when, when you, they, they, they followed, they ran after idols and, and, and all types of other, fell into all kinds of sin. And, and you don't have to read long into the book of Exodus after they had left um, Egypt and gone into the, towards the promised land that they were falling away from God. Now, if, if God's promises are conditional, then the Jew has an argument. But God's promises aren't conditional. You see, God doesn't give up on sinful people. God, God didn't give up and wasn't give up and never will give up on the Jewish people. And as Paul makes his argument, he says, will God give up on us? And he says in verse 4, he says, absolutely not. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written. So Paul's saying, never under any circumstances will God give up on you. God will not give up. Now, 
then he quotes out of he quotes out of Psalm 51 when 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 David has has David's sin with Bathsheba has been exposed by Nathan the prophet and 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 in chapter 51 David gives this incredible repentant uh, speech and he says at one point he says so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge and so so here that that is a quote from David in Psalm 51 so David has sinned, God has judged him, and after, but after God judged David, he also forgave him, proving that God's grace is greater than man's sin. And the point that David is, or Paul is making here is, look, God is always willing to forgive. And and not all of the sins that the Jewish people committed would ever keep God from, would make God break his promise. I mean, you think about David. I mean, David, I mean, you couldn't be much worse than David was, right? I mean, David um, it was his king, and, and he sees Bathsheba um, out bathing, and, and, and he commits adultery with her. And then not only does he commit adultery with her, he, he, he finds out that, that Bathsheba is pregnant because of this adultery. And, and, and so when her husband comes back, which is one of David's best men, David has him killed. And so, so he commits adultery, he, he commits murder, he, he is just one of the worst guys you could ever think of. And yet God forgives him for those sins. So the point here that I think Paul is making is we can't give up on God because God doesn't give up on us. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking, but you don't understand. You don't understand how much I have sinned. You don't understand the extent of my sin. You don't understand how messed up my mind is. I probably don't. But here's what I do know. It doesn't matter how much we have sinned. It doesn't matter what we've done. God never, never, never gives up on us. It's what the cross was for. It's why Jesus came to justify us, to take our sin away. So objection number two, Paul says, has no value. You can't give up on God because, because God will never give up on you. So the third objection that, that Paul makes here that he may have heard um, during his debates with other people is Paul says, so, so why bother being good? Why bother being good? And this argument goes something like this. Well, Paul...
you've played right into our hands. He says, you just got through saying that David's sin gave God a chance to demonstrate both his justice and his grace. So if David hadn't sinned, follow me here, if David hadn't sinned, then God would have never had a chance to judge him or forgive him. So in a sense, Paul, David is helping God out by sinning. And if that's the case, whenever I sin, I'm really helping God out. And if helping, if sinning helps God out, how can he judge me for being a sinner? If our sin gives God a chance to demonstrate his faithfulness in judgment and his grace, why not sin so that God can forgive me? And in that forgiveness, God can be glorified. That's the argument that they're, that, that, that they're making here. And so, so, so basically what they're saying, look, sin glorifies God. And, and you see this, this objection stated three, three different times in the text. In, in verse 5 it says, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And in verse 7, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And in verse 8, let us do evil that good may result. So the question is, when, when I sin, am I doing God a favor? Being bad makes God look good, then I'll be really bad so that God can look really good. And Paul's response is may it never be. The Greek is a lot stronger than that. Something like, God forbid, or that's really stupid to think like that. I'm not sure if your kids are allowed to say that. That's just what the Greek says. Paul says, that is ridiculous for you to think that's by you sinning that, that it, would, it would make God look better. Because you see, sin is always, always sin. There is no such thing as good sin. Sin hurts people. Sin is why Jesus came to this earth. Sin is why Jesus died on the cross. There is nothing good about it. Now, 
it is true that, that God is able to bring about good things even from our terrible mistakes. That's what God's grace is all about. But we have to understand that just because God can bring good things out of our bad choices doesn't justify sin. Sin is never, ever justified. Sin always hurts. But, but God is always, always able to forgive and willing to forgive. And so once I have sinned, God has this amazing ability to, just, to, to, to justify, to, to take away my sin. And when I'm willing to confess that sin, he will forgive that sin. So these three objections, so, so why be religious? Paul says, because this religion, this thing that you're practicing that I gave you, points people to, to God. For us, our faith in Christ and our living that out points people to Jesus. And God expects more, not less from us. So why not give up on God since he's given up on God? The reality is, well, you can't give up on God because God hasn't given up on you. Why bother being good because sin is always sin? You know, I think for all of us, and I think for this Jewish audience, I think they all had the same desire. And that was to, to, to be right with God and, and to spend eternity in heaven. I think that would be all of our desires is, is, is to, to be in heaven someday. But I think what happened to the Jews was their road map, they got lost on this map. They were going the wrong way. They were looking for the wrong things, and it took them in a wrong direction, and it didn't matter how hard or how fast they went. They were going this way, and this is where God wanted them to go. It reminded me several, about 30 years ago, we used to every year go to Indiana for the, the Mennonite World Series of softball. We thought it was really important back in the day. But I remember one year uh, on the way home from that tournament, um, coming out of Fort Wayne, there was a little bit of a tricky exchange, and, and it was back when Route 30 was just two-lane. Um, and, and coming out of that, I, I took the wrong 
road. I got off on the wrong road, and, and, and Verna said, we really need to stop and ask for This was before GPS. Now, 30 was paved by this time, but this was before GPS. And so, so I'm driving, and Verna says, we should really stop and ask for directions. And, and, and my response was, well, no, I think this, this takes us right beside, right, we're just running parallel with Route 30, and at some point, we're going to run back into it. Just trust me on this. And we keep driving, and I keep driving faster, and, and, and she keeps saying, we should really stop and ask for directions. And my male instinct says, why ask for directions? Now, my family would tell you that the GPS in my head is not very reliable. So we're driving along, and about, about a half hour into this, um, we're driving, and all of a sudden, I see a popcorn farm. Now, it doesn't mean anything to you, but, but a couple years earlier, I had seen that popcorn farm, and I wasn't on my way home, and immediately I realized that, that I was lost. I was going the wrong way, but, but did this male instinct stop and ask for directions? No, I didn't. But in that moment, when I saw that farm, and I knew I was going the wrong way, I had a 55-year-old menopausal hot flash. I was really uncomfortable, and I was fanning. But I didn't tell Verda where that, that I didn't tell her, although I was pretty sure that I was lost. I kept going faster, and I was making really good time going the wrong way. And so, so as we go, we, all of a sudden, here's a rest area. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to see where we're at. So I get out of the car, I walk up to the map, and I look at the map, and it says, you are here. Now, Fort Wayne is here, Apple Creek is here, it's almost directly west. Well, I don't even know where Hicksville, Ohio is. Hicksville, Ohio is up here. That's where I was at. I was going the wrong way. I was lost. Even when I recognized that I was probably going the wrong way, my pride kept me from stopping and correcting my course and going the right way. And it wasn't until I looked at this road map and figured out where I was that I could correct my course and head to where my final destination was. Paul's audience was a lot like that. They were going a direction, and, and even once Paul helped them to see, and this is what the first four chapters of Romans are really about, they're about helping us to understand our current reality. This is where you are. You are here so that they could change their direction and go the way that God uh, wanted them to go. But, you know, we're like that. You know, some, of, uh, some of you may be headed in the wrong direction. 
in your spiritual journey. You're going really hard and you're going really fast, but it's not taking you to the ultimate destination that you desire, that is eternity with Christ. And some of you even understand the reality that you're going the wrong way. And yet you continue to choose to run hard the wrong way. My question is, what is it going to take for you to stop, understand where you are, acknowledge that you're lost, And head the right direction. Invite Jesus to come. To be your savior. To justify you from all of your sins. And cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And point you in the right direction. Because that's really. I think when we look at this. That's what Paul is trying to accomplish. When he, when he makes these objections. And when he talks to, 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 to his audience here. He's saying look guys. You're going the wrong way. This is where you're at. This is how you can get there. The question is, are you headed the right direction? Do you know where you're at? And are you willing to make the corrections needed to go the right way? And only you know that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that helps us to, to understand where we are. I pray right now through your Holy Spirit that everyone here be able to see in their minds through the power of your spirit their roadmap and Jesus you would show them the desired destination of eternity and in that desired destination you would show them where on the map they are. And Lord, what course corrections that possibly need to be made so they can run to you and toward you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.